0: Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the Science Fiction Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And I'm Seth. Welcome, everyone. Hey. Uh, So Spectology, what do we do here? Uh, Every month, usually, we pick a science fiction book, read it, and talk about it over the course of two episodes, sort of a spoiler-free pre-read, and then a really in-depth analysis post-read. This month, we're changing it up a little bit. Uh, instead, we're reading three shorter, older kind of classic works of science fiction, and we have a different guest on for each post read. So you've already heard our pre read. Uh, well, we'll be talking about some of this, but we will um, instead we're today. Joined by Seth Heasley of the Hugo's There podcast, "Take Me to Your Reader," and at least one other, the name of which I am forgetting. Um, <laughs> so, Seth, do you want to okay, introduce yourself, in. <laughs> and then we will uh, talk a little bit about the book, Childhood's End?
1: Yep. Yeah, you were two thirds of the way there, so you know credit where it's due. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm Seth, and I've I've had. Adrian on the Hugo's There podcast, where mm-hmm. I'm just reading through the Hugo winners with my guest, choosing which one we're going to talk about, and uh, we did the Left Hand of Darkness, which was awesome and uh, one of my better episodes. I feel like so.
0: I I re-listened to the episode today, actually, um, like just in yeah. in prep for this. It was it was a very fun time to be on, and I really enjoyed that episode. It was.
2: I enjoyed it as a listener. Yep. <laughs> it was great. Nice, but your other episodes nice. are good too.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also have Take Me to Your Reader, where we talk about uh, science fiction books adapted into films, and uh, that, it was kind of germane to the previous conversation we had on spectology about mm-hmm. uh, science fiction films and that were adapted. And the then cinema. I also do one that I've been doing with my son called Brief and Not So Brief, and that one's just about movies, because he wanted to do a podcast with me, and when you're a dad and your kid asks you to do a podcast, you're like, yep, let's do it. <laughs> um, so that one, very How infrequent high. episodes. Uh as often as I can drag him over to record with me. Um, But that's been fun.
2: I imagine that's sort of the thing about um, if your kid wanted to do it, you know, I bet that he would be really, really excited. And I also bet that he would sort of at any given moment rather be doing something else.
1: (laughs) That is accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. It, it We do an episode pretty much anytime I can convince him to record with me. You know, we'll, we'll watch like 10 movies and I'm like, so do you want to record on any of these? And he's like, no, no, don't don't want to. So.
2: <laughs>
1: Let's yeah. watch some more. <laughs> <laughs> when,
0: when I saw that you were doing like a podcast with your son, I got really excited. I was like, that's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. And to hear that he like wanted to do it with you, like that's good, strong dad energy there. Oh yeah. <laughs> I would never have wanted to do anything like that with my dad. So right. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to stay relevant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, but- I guess that's why my dad like snowboarded with me though. So yeah, totally. I mean, that,
1: that really is a thing as a parent, right? Finding out what your kid likes and then engaging in that. Um, my son mostly is into swimming and his mom is more, uh, kind of connected in that Mm. and he's just he kind of just assumes i don't know anything about swimming which is generally accurate (laughs) but when you compare me to like the general population i know a ton just not as much as he would like me to (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: that's the way of it (laughs)
2: yeah there's always going to be like things that he will especially i i'm assuming he's not an adult
1: Uh, he is 18 actually
2: oh wow well but that's but you know mostly hasn't been an adult right (laughs) (laughs) and you know, I remember being a teenager. Yeah. There may be thim- there may be some things that you will never be able to satisfy him on at that age. Understood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mm. Yes. <laughs> cool well thank you for being here
0: seth it was Absolutely. like a ton of fun to have you on last time and totally you know we wanted to do an actual like book with you um so i'm glad that this is working out Yeah, it's great i appreciate a couple it. other returning guests for some of our other episodes as well this month so that'll be fun cool so yeah this month we read the um i almost said the left hand of darkness <laughs> <laughs> this month we read childhood's end by arthur c clark right um which was a lot of fun. I kind of wanted, so I read it the first, it's one of the first science fiction books I really like ever really read Mm. and loved. So it's like kind of fun for me to go back to it. I'm curious for each of you, like what your history of the book is, plus just like a little, like mini, like non-spoiler review. We'll get into spoilers, like after we do our kind of like, did we like it or not thing, but, um, Usually we do full spoilers from the break. These episodes a little bit different just because we're reading so many books. So yeah, like what's the, you know, kind of like two minutes. Did you like it? Like what was your experience? Then we'll like kind of dig into the meat of it. Yeah, Seth, if you want to start, go ahead.
1: Um, This novel was actually a favorite of my dad's. And so... 10 years ago or so, uh, he passed away in 2014. But, um, prior to that, he, he's like, Hey, have you ever read this book? And so I picked it up and read it and we had some great discussions on it. And it's one of those things where after your parent passes away, you're like, I, why didn't I record some of those conversations, you know? Um, because you want to mm-hmm. be able to go back and, and play it back in vivid detail. But I don't even really remember all that much of what we talked about. Just that it, it's something that he read, you know, when he was a kid, um, cause he was born in 42, mm-hmm. um, this book came out in the fifties, I think. And so it was one, he, you know, he was a real old fashioned nerd and 53, um, I think. Yeah. It it has a lot of stuff to discuss, you know, we're both Christians. And so it it definitely has some, some meaty theological stuff to talk through. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable read. I enjoyed reviewing it this time. I actually picked it up on audio, um, just to make it a little Mm -hmm. easier just so I could get it done quicker. Oh, cool. Um, and then, then I kind of flipped back, like I reread Corellin's speech at the end in its entirety in print, just to make sure that I kind of had a sense of what that was. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. almost the like. Oh, oh, I'll oh, oh, get into we can <laughs> we get into yeah, the yeah. poetry part <laughs> yes. uh, now. What did what did you think of? Because I know you read it a few months ago on
2: my recommendation. Yeah, right? I. Well, not just you. I mean, this is a book that right. I mean, I know I I knew of course that you loved it, and but you know. Likewise, this is a book that, that my dad, um, told me about, you know, a long time ago and I never really read it, but I, I read it for the first time very recently, like in the last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it was a pretty interesting experience. Um, since I've read so much stuff that's been obviously influenced by this, it's Mm -hmm. very interesting to go back. And mm. read the thing that was the progenitor, or yes. uh, the great ancestor, so to speak. <laughs> um, that was kind of my 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 experience of, of reading the book was was really like, like thinking a lot about all the stuff that I love that I did read as a kid or that I did experience when I was younger and that was formative for me. But that was so obviously like just made out of pieces of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because I I I've talked to my dad a lot about sci-fi stuff because that's something we share also and uh but i never i've never talked to him about this book um uh not for any particular reason just randomly so i think i will probably s- have that conversation <laughs> i'll have to do that nice i love that this is turning into the dad's yeah, yeah, episode definitely. i know like, it's not such planned, a dad episode. But... <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> uh, because that's also that is what i bring <laughs> yeah <laughs> so big dad energy <laughs> yep Yep. Um, so yeah, I, um, you know, my history with this book is I actually don't remember if my dad recommended this particularly to me or not. Although he was the first person to like, give me science fiction books as I've, you know, talked about with both of you before. And, um, this is definitely, I mean, it was published in 53. It's like very old. And one of the but for me, it has that thing of like, it's very old, but it also feels almost like more modern than a lot of the other science fiction novels kind of published around its time. And I think a lot of that is just mm. like how influential it's been in, in different ways. And I definitely reading it, you know, this is the first time I've read it since I was in college, probably. So like 10 years ago, maybe was the last time I read it. And before then, I'd only ever read it once when I was like, a you know, probably in middle school or something like that. So it's been like, you know, every 10 years rereading it. And coming to it with the totally like being a totally different person, getting like very different things out of it Mm. each time I read it, you know, maybe being like realizing like, oh, there's some of the problematic stuff I didn't really kind of recognize (laughs) the first time, which we'll talk about. And then um, but yeah, it was fun. It's not always nice to read a book that like cause again, I read this as a kid and it's always nice to read a book that I read as a kid and like still holds up in a lot of ways. There've definitely been those ones where I read yeah. them again. I'm like, Oh geez, like this was not a very good novel. <laughs> you know, I loved it. That's great, but like not great. Oh, uh, and this is like, this is, it's, I, I really enjoyed the the experience of rereading it here. And I feel like there's a ton to talk about. So with that, let's, you know, from here on, we're, I think going to get into spoilers. So if you, you know, Fun old book <laughs> read if if you haven't yet, or you know, listen to the spoilers because it is
1: like a seventy-year-old right. book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't even really talk that much about uh, a non-spoiler discussion about this one, but it's really, really hard. I think, yeah, to say anything without spoiling something. That's right. right.
0: I mean, one of the first twists comes like you know, I was actually really surprised. So again, we're into spoilers now, forewarned. But like, I was really surprised by how early the um the like overlord twist came that they look like demons because I remembered that as like the big twist of the novel. But of course it comes like
1: a quarter of the way through it. Yeah. That is not what the book is about, but it's a great reveal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you guys, I'm I'm really, really curious to hear some other uh, perspectives on this because um, there are two things make this conversation particularly interesting to me. Uh, One is, you know, as people who may listen to this podcast um, may know, I am not somebody who likes to have stuff get spoiled for me before I read it. And as a result, I've gone out of my way to not know what this book was about um, mm-hmm. until I you know, wanted to read it, which was pretty recently. And as a result of that, I haven't talked about it with people really much mm-hmm. ever. And I don't know what people think about it like in any detail. You know, I've heard a lot of people say they liked it. <laughs> right 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 <laughs> but i am really curious like what did you like like what were some of your like favorite things in the book totally
0: hmm. i mean that first reveal i i remember especially as so when i read it first as a kid i was like still a practicing christian at that point and i remember the reveal just blowing my fucking mind Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> like that feeling of like, oh, what? And like this is also like maybe, you know, probably at the time, like there were feelings of shame tied up in it being like, oh, should I be reading this? Like this feels like, you know, kind of um, subversive literature for, you know, little like 12 year old.
2: Did your I'm, mom, uh, maybe this is too personal of a no, question no, no, go ahead. for the I, air, but I was going to ask, like, did your mom feel OK about you being into science fiction in general? I think my mom didn't really, like, know
0: what science fiction was. Like, she was never a big reader of it. So I think if I had been into Hmm. fantasy, she would have been really, like, weirded out and, like, not okay with that. Like, if I had been reading, like, Harry Potter in middle school, she wouldn't have liked that, I know. But I think Hmm. science fiction for her, she just didn't really, like, get it. And so it kind of, like, slipped under the radar. And then my dad was both, like, a lot less... I guess, you know, kind of like squidgy about that stuff and also had read a bunch of science fiction when he was a kid. So he had all these like fond memories of stuff he had not read. I mean, my dad gave me Stranger in a Strange Land when I was like 13 or 14. Oh, my God. The
2: exact same thing Boy. happened to me. Right. The exact and, like, same thing happened to me. He did not remember exactly what
0: was in that book. Likewise.
2: <laughs> Dude, I had the an identical experience with right. that exact book.
0: <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, you I think you and I have talked about this at some point. Yeah. So, so for my dad, it was just like excited that I liked any of the same stuff he did yeah. and not really the memory of like, oh yeah, that's right. There's a bunch of like weird sex stuff in this book or a bunch of weird, you know, like <laughs> anti-Christian stuff. In so much as that is even, you right. know, we'll talk about sort of the, the meaning of it. So that, that's kind of my, um, I remember that twist. I remember the very end when, um, Jan comes back after like humanity is kind of gone. Like that was always like this really intense scene for me. And, um, Mm -hmm. what else? And, And, oh, the other thing that I like, I had for years, just this image in my head of the kids dreaming about space. And, like, it's really funny because it's only a couple of pages of the novel, but in my head, that's this, like, huge important chunk of the novel is these, like, children in their beds just, like, dreaming and, like, projecting themselves, like, throughout the universe. Um, that's, like, such this, like, core strong image
1: of me when it comes to, like, just science fiction generally. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What about you, Seth? Yeah, for me, I mean, one of the things that I really loved about this book is that in science fiction, you get, particularly these days, you get a lot of stuff that's kind of falling into the dystopian camp. Mm-hmm. And there's some classics of dystopian stuff like 1984 as well. And then you have a little bit of utopian literature, but this one kind of has that middle ground, right? Where where it's not exactly a dystopia. It's not quite a utopia. I mean, it, it is a utopia, but there's a downside to it. And that Mm -hmm. to me is one of the more interesting parts of the book is just at what cost utopia, right? Because getting rid of human striving and human suffering has a consequence in aspirational pursuits like art and probably literature and science. And so kind of as a consequence of the overlords coming and saying, hey, we have all the answers. All of a sudden, this major part of what makes humanity it's just gone and and so i liked that that idea and then the fact that you know of course then you have people who are going to be the counterculture and go okay we're going to go out and do our own thing and ignore the overlords and have art again right and i i thought that was an interesting thing and (laughs) on this read i'm like that's really not much of the book i i remembered it being a larger portion of the narrative yeah so
2: that's really interesting
1: But, um, then one other thing that I, that I like is the progressive reveal about more about the overlords, because you start Mm -hmm. off having them like the Q from Star Trek, right? Where they they know everything they have, they have all the technology and everything. And then you find out that they are middlemen, you know, they're, they're middle management and, and they don't really know who they serve and, I really love that. It just blew me away um, the first time I read it. I'm like, okay, so these guys are not exactly the boss, right? They're serving somebody else, and they want to know more about who they're actually serving. Mm -hmm. And that was cool. Yeah, Yeah. that was
0: something, this read, like the degree to which they were studying the, like, overmind, like their boss. Like, I had kind of never, like, noticed that in the previous reads, and that really stuck out to me, like the kind of – the plight of the overlords as being like yeah. interesting was really mm-hmm. cool.
1: Yeah. You end up feeling kind of bad for them. Totally.
0: Yeah. You do. Yeah. Even while they're also like, you know, kind of like colonial powers, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. Right. Give and date. Yes. The other thing that really struck me as interesting was, you know, previously the last two times I've read this, you know, I was like 12 once like in my early twenties or something and reading it and getting mm-hmm. like, it's so funny because it's these chapters are from the perspective of um, of the parents of these kids. But I had always like identified with the children and like, oh, how cool is that? Mm. That they get to like oh, go out and go to space and everything. But like this time I did read it with this sense of like, wow, like what these parents are going through is like awful. Like it's so hard. And like I had yeah. so much of a sense of like, you know, like pathos and bathos even like for them. Um, wow. the, the sense yeah. of like wow like they're really going through something that I think you know took being in my 30s to be able to see that perspective maybe
2: yes that is super interesting to hear I obviously since I only read it really recently it almost didn't even occur to me that until you just said that that you could identify with the children mm-hmm. um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because they seem so distant from me now they do right in this both in the sense that like i feel distant from a child and also in the sense that as characters in the book they are distant from the parent characters right it all it does remind me i i really enjoyed um perhaps we can link this in the show notes i i read uh joe walton did a did a reread of this book recently or in the last Mm. few years at least and did a blog post about um child's end and her Mm -hmm. Uh, relationship with the book is a little bit like yours, Adrian in that she read it um, as a kid and then she's read it a couple times since then at different points in her life and in her review, she kind of she talks a little bit about how in her experience talking to different people about this book, the emotional, timbre of what happens to the children is something that people have very different reactions to. Yeah. And those reactions sort of stay with them, even if they've read the book multiple times throughout their life. So for instance, she had a very, she was horrified as a child reading about what happens mm-hmm. to the children and rema- oh. and kind of that horror stayed with her as she became an adult and read it again. But her husband had your reaction. right? Her husband also read it as a child, had your reaction. That reaction stayed with him as he read it again throughout his life. So that's very interesting to me. Interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I think as a kid, I identified with the children to this degree of like, you know, we've talked about this, you know, like... uh, spectology bingo, like Alaska is the middle square, like even more so now that Seth is on the <laughs> podcast with us, but yes. like <laughs> that, like for me, there was this element of like, okay. So on the one hand, like they're gaining these crazy superpowers and like going through the universe, blah, blah, blah. But also there's like this emotional thing there of like, you know, I'm growing up in like, you know, Essentially, a cabin in the woods, but like the internet exists, and I can like see the whole world like from that cabin. Like there's this sense of like, oh, like, yeah. I am here, but there like are other places to go, and there are ways to escape and leave. And so, like this kind of thing of like humanity graduating to the next level, in some ways to me just felt like a metaphor for like, oh, well, like, someday I'll be able to like go to New York City and have a podcast, I guess. Um, <laughs> right.
2: I just, that I'm really sorry, is the, pinnacle. The, the idea of little Adrian dreaming of podcasts.
0: <laughs> I mean, obviously it's like before
2: podcasting, you're right. Like, but, but,
0: but that idea of like, oh, someday, like, you know, I can escape in the same way that these kids are, right. um, I think right. had a, like a very emotional valence to me. Definitely. I can mm-hmm. see that.
1: Yeah. And then, so for me, you know, the first time I read this, I was already a father And, Mm -hmm. you know, my son was, you know, eight or nine years old. And so looking at that, the transcendence that happens with the children, right, where they all band together and end up leaving. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a father of a a grade schooler, you're kind of like, oh, that's neat. You know, that's that's cool. Um, You know, I'd be I'd be happy for them. And the idea that as a parent, right, you'll you'll sacrifice things and you'll you'll as long as they're okay, you're okay. Mm. Um it reminded me a little bit of um have you seen the Nicolas Cage movie Knowing? No. No. Ooh, interesting. Okay. I don't want to spoil it then. Um there there's something in there that that kind of relates to that, but I'll leave that to you guys to Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, exercise, to it, As long as you're yeah, okay watching a, a Nicolas Cage movie. Oh <laughs> I am. I am. So uh so now, like I mentioned, my son just turned eighteen, right? And he's he's a senior in high school and mm. he's gonna be going off to college. Next year, and and so the idea of him going out from us now, yeah, we're proud of him and everything, but but there's it's bittersweet, um, and it it feels different this time,
2: right? I mean, it's like real oh, this time, yeah,
1: yes, absolutely.
2: That seems to me like I mean, if I had to sort of describe in as short a fashion as possible the emotional core of the movie, it's it's like oh, sorry, the emotional core of the book. Um, Child, of childhood's <laughs> end not of nick cage movie um, <laughs> right i i would say it's it's about like uh like displaying the complexity of growing up in all the different ways that one could grow up yeah perhaps one could grow up as a species perhaps one could grow up as a person perhaps one one could grow up you know as a as a as a reader you know mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 about like mm-hmm. taking what you expect the narrative to be and then like kind of complicating it in an interesting way in other words not having it just like you know the the expected narrative for children i think when children imagine growing up is simple one way or another whether they expect it to be good or they expect it to be bad i mean at least that's what i remember Mm -hmm. um but then, of course, what happens is 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 neither that it is good nor that it is bad. What happens is, is that it is complicated
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: um, yeah. and that's I, I mean, to go back to something you said, Seth, like that's that's what I love about the ending of this book or the various reveals of the book is that all of them n- none of them are like a sort of obvious positive vision of the future or negative vision of the future. They're all just complicated. Mm-hmm troubling but also potentially optimistic but also still troubling visions of mm-hmm. the future and that seems yeah. like a much more honest like emotionally honest way of, of thinking about how th- how change feels um and mm-hmm. that's just something i love about this because i i don't even now like i don't when i when i think about other stories other books other movies other whatever that like are science fiction that have the same emotional quality like they all seem like they're Based on childhood's end. <laughs> like they seem like they're riffing on this. Hmm. Right. Well, I'm thinking I, of, yeah. Go oh, ahead. I was going to say, I mean,
0: I think in particular, like you and I have brought this book up like multiple times with books we've read on the podcast, in particular around um, 10 billion days and 100 billion nights, right? Yeah. Or these like, these stories of these like sweeping vistas, but also yeah. of like this chain and uh, change in evolution over, over many years. One thing too that this idea of, like growing up made me think of there's there's a point in the in the first part of the book where you're from the um point of view of the like UN co- console and it's like you know 30 years in the future and he's like an old man and he's thinking about stuff and he thinks back to like you know what the events that we had just read about and he's like ah to be a young man of 60 you know to be <laughs> to be so inexperienced And, you know, I I read that and Mm -hmm. I had this moment of like, oh, huh, because I've always thought of like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke as an old man because he was still alive and writing stuff when I read this book and when I read a lot of other like science fiction by him. And, you know, and I looked it up and like, no, he was in his mid 30s, essentially, when he read this book. And so that idea of like him writing from the perspective of a 90 year old thinking to the perspective of a 60 year old and finding that perspective, like wanting Uh, was just like I I don't know I really love that the way that kind of encapsulated this theme of growing up I mean childhood's end right like the theme is like in the title but but that theme like from Jan to that character to even the overlords and like they're trying to discover what the overmind is like that theme is ever present that's cool that's cool Matt
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I just so my favorite moment in the in the book I mean there are a lot of things I liked about it but my favorite moment was actually probably when Jan is at the Overlord planet and he catches a glimpse of this like massive movement. <laughs> right. That still like sends chills <laughs> up my spine. I love it. I absolutely love it. That moment is like that like moment is like the the distillation of like the sense of wonder that people talk about with good science fiction right there. Mm. <laughs>
0: hmm. You know, I yep. was I was curious, Seth, you know, one of the reasons like I thought of you for this book was one, like I, I, you know, I really like what you're doing with Hugo's there and this like, you know, reading stuff like from the early 50s to now and kind of like seeing mm-hmm. how those themes change. Um, but then also, like like I said, I first read this book. I was like a Christian at the time, like I'm not anymore. And I think that I wouldn't say that this book like caused that in any way, but it was definitely right. like one of the things that I read as a kid. Um, Around the time that I was really having these questions of faith um, sure. and like you're a practicing Christian now. And I was very curious, kind of like the emotional valence of right. Like I would say Clark is not actively hostile towards religion, but somewhat maybe um, like dismissive of it. Yeah. While also having these like very like kind of like mystical elements to the book at the same time. I mean, I'm kind of curious, like your perspective on all that stuff, both the like, you know, oh, the overlords are demons, but demons are good, really. But also this kind of like larger sort of like theme of mysticism and religion through the whole novel.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can say that, you know, reading it when I did the reveal of the demons, I'm sorry, the reveal of the overlords looking like demons didn't. <laughs> throw me it just made me go okay that's really cool and and then yeah. it, it brings up that question right that, yeah that, that comes was my up, reaction too. it comes up in the book where where they're like wait so our kind of whole idea of what demons look like does that come from you guys visiting earlier and you find out but no we didn't visit earlier but there's something to you know kind of the connectedness of mind that you yeah know, it's it's wibbly wobbly kind of um i love that yeah Tommy yeah i whiny. like that a, a lot actually um From a Christian perspective, there is a lot to talk about because it's, uh, how do I say this? Um, There's a lot of, you know, science fiction authors that are skeptical, atheist, you know, rationalist, Mm -hmm. and they like to dream that their ideal world is one without religion. And that's not something that I resonate Mm -hmm. with. And so I kind of roll my eyes and I go, okay, right. That's sure. Whatever. And so the notion that the overlords show up and religion just dies, you know, in 10 years or, or 20 years. Yeah. I don't buy it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, okay. So, so it kind of comes to a couple questions, right? Would aliens showing up cause religion to die? No, no, it definitely would not. There would be some people <laughs> right. who, who have, I guess what, uh, you know who the author Rob Bell is? He's a Christian author, but he's pretty controversial. No, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard of him. Okay. So he, he had this term in one of his books called Brick Wall Faith, where you take all your interpretation, your personal beliefs and all your interpretations of scriptures, and you build that up as this bedrock of your faith. And so mm-hmm. when any, pit, any bit of that starts to crumble, all your faith goes with it. And you would have mm-hmm. people like that who would be like, well, the Bible doesn't seem to mention aliens, so... I guess it's all crap. I'm going to give it up and, and walk away, right? That would happen. I'm sure there would be some percentage of exodus from faiths of all kinds. I can only really talk about Christianity, and I'm not even really qualified to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> We're all about but, that. It's you know, podcast, there are more, baby. <laughs> r- exactly. <laughs> I've got a mic in front of me. That means I'm right, right? Um, but even, I, I think what what you would end up with is you would have a large percentage of the world's religions that would be like, hey, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but the scriptures clearly predicted this. And they would build back up around that. Yeah. And and that would be, it would be kind, kind of, it would evolve faiths to have to um, comprehend intelligences from other worlds. But I don't think you'd see religions just crumble overnight. Now, this book, takes an extra step, right? Because he talks about how the overlords have been watching us for a long time and they have some kind of universal DVR that they've recorded all the events on earth. And so they go back and they yeah. basically prove, look, all your religions are crap. Here, Here's the origins of it. The things you said happened or that, that are said in your scriptures did not happen. That would take more of a toll, right? If you had anybody, anybody like me, who's more kind of, of a rational, sort of skeptical mindset, you know, like... I don't believe in science scientific conspiracies um and so I'd be like okay well I guess that's the evidence and that's where we are and and I could walk away right with with a clear conscience but you would get other people who'd just be like that's fake news you know um I don't trust the source um because I mean you look at right. when you look at what we have right yeah. now right there's incontrovertible evidence that the earth is a sphere right or oblate spheroid sorry nerdy um, but right. we have flat earthers, right? We've got anti-vaxxers, we've got people who believe in horoscopes and homeopathy, yeah. and no amount of evidence is causing those people to abandon those beliefs. And those aren't even religious beliefs. So,
2: yeah. No, that, I mean, I totally agree with everything you're saying, so. <laughs> right,
0: right. I mean, I think even from the perspective of, you know, this this kind of like time travel ansible thing, whatever whatever they call it, like... Even yeah. with that, like, I know, I know that, you know, I, I, practice Buddhism and even with that, like, if we could go back and see that, like, oh did this or not this, or there are actually many people or this, like stories are like combined from a bunch of different stories and all that wouldn't matter. Right. No. Like, I know, like my community would be fine through that. Like, we are already somewhat skeptical of like the story, like kind of myth of the Buddha, as opposed to like historically yeah, yeah. what happened and, you know, I know there are plenty of Christians who feel that same way about the, like, various stories of the Bible to, like, differing degrees. So, yeah, I see a lot of this as, like— Yeah, definitely to different degrees. Right, right. And, like, different stories might be, like, more or less important or, like, more or less metaphorical, but, like— Yes.
1: You know. Yeah, and I would say that I don't think Buddhism is— as vulnerable to disproof as Christianity is, right? Because Christianity takes as a tenet, Mm -hmm. at least for Orthodox Christianity, right? And I'm not, not capital O Orthodox. Um, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the Bible itself says our faith is in vain. Um, Paul, Paul wrote that in one of his letters, right? If that fact is not true, then the rest of it does not matter. Now, if you're, there are, you know, liberal strains of Christianity that are like, no, we know there's some mythological stuff here. That, those people aren't as vulnerable to that as I would be, for instance. So, right. but there's there's also like going back to the brick wall thing, right? There's a whole history of religions reacting to scientific truths that seemed to undermine religion, and totally. they always responded, uh, not always well and not always promptly, right? You you think about the uh, the Galileo thing, right? Hundreds of years before the the church <laughs> came out and said, "Yeah, that's our bad," right? Um, but what it is, what it tends to be in those cases is the modern person of faith is not connected to the history of their faith. And so they're not connected to the breadth of interpretation of scriptures, for instance. Mm. And so like, if you go back to St. Augustine or Maimonides, if you're talking about the Jewish sages, right, they did not take the mm. beginnings of the Bible literally. And they didn't, they didn't, they were not young earth creationists. And so in right. the U S for instance, right, you have the rise of the, Fundamentalism uh, in the you know late late nineteenth century and into the twentieth century that became kind of the de facto religion Christianity of America and that is you know the group that is really really anti evolution and and anti climate change even now mm-hmm. right anti science um, mm-hmm. but that's not that hasn't always been the case right
2: and and I think there's a similar dynamic in every major orthodoxy in the world you know you have like there's there's a you know it tends to be the case that like a given strand of uh belief you know in as much as it's based on a certain specific community that's anchored in a certain time and place you know is is associated with things that would be pretty alien to people in other times and places
1: Mm -hmm. who nonetheless kind of use similar like identifiers (laughs) Um, right i mean on the other hand i would love to talk theology with an alien just to know you know is, is this a uniquely human thing or is this a, you know, do species evolve and become intelligent and look for the divine and do they create it in their own image? Is there similarity, you know, between cultures that developed on different planets and different solar systems? I'd be interested to have that discussion.
0: Yeah. That was something as a kid I always thought about was this question of like, you know, If there are aliens, like, did Jesus go to their planet? (laughs) Right. Right. Like, did he have to have, like, what would that mean? You know, like not with any even like strong answers, but like, but what would that mean? It's such a burly question that was maybe not available to, you know, the like Jews in, you know, Rome in the like, you know, first couple of centuries AD, but like is available to us to ask.
2: Yeah. One thing that I, one thing that I think about, um, when you guys, when I, whenever I, I am in a conversation like this, um, you know, is about the, the, you, you mentioned the sort of the youth and contingency of, uh, flat earth beliefs and of, you know, modern evangelical Christianity in America. Uh, it just makes me think of the youth and contingency of modern materialist atheism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I mean, this, the same, the same kind of you know, we need to apply these same kind of anthropological gaze that we are applying to religion to, to you know, whatever religion isn't also, hmm. you know? Right. right. Sure. And like the and social so, structures of like, how do people
0: talk about atheism? Like how has rationalism yeah. in, pers- in right. particular become a like, you know, method of becoming an atheist? Yeah. Right.
2: But, but in, in the context of this book, it, it it makes me think like, oh, well, so Clark is... Coming, Clark isn't coming at this with an absence of religion. He's coming at this with some sort of set of proactive beliefs, which, mm-hmm. you know, probably go back to... Uh, I actually don't know enough about his biography to say exactly, but certainly, like, the context he's in goes back to, you know, the socialism of and uh, various other political philosophies of the middle of the 19th century, you know, and before that, the deists and, and so on. Like, yeah, there's yeah. a... His, his kind of dismissal of religion itself has a history um, right? yes which is interesting
0: well and if i can maybe you know take this and like pivot the conversation to another place that i wanted to go is i think one of the places that this history has is of is western imperialism frankly yes and like one of the things i noticed reading this book this time and i actually think it um works really well as a foil to the left hand of darkness, like the book that we read together, Seth, on your podcast. I'm actually really excited for this. Um, (laughs) is like just the credulity that it treats colonialism with, like the book treats colonialism as like overall pretty okay, like had Mm. its problems, but overall, (laughs) like, you know, West, like there's one line of something of like, you know, like rationalism being like the gift that Western civilization bequeathed upon the world, or so maybe not quite that like flowery, but there's like right. some line to that effect towards the end of the book, and and that attitude is taken like throughout the book, like yes, oftentimes throughout the book, even to the overlords. I mean, the overlords are colonial powers that like come and like you know oppress us and give us utopia, and right? they are compared to the British in India. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> right. like one hundred percent, and the British in India are taken as like. You know, they've had some problems, you know, he's not like a complete apologist, but right. he is an apologist.
2: If only the British in India had had the technological powers the overlords <laughs> possess. Right, right. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I think it's a really kind of interesting, like, I think there's some elements uh, like that these two things jive with each other a little bit of on the one hand, Clark again, in the fifties at the time that he's writing this, I know that he evolved his own thinking over time. Um, But like at the time had this like thought of like, you know, rationalism is good and beneficial and is something that can, you know, frankly be proselytized throughout the world. Right. And like this book is one way of doing that proselytization of like telling everyone, like, look, we can have nice things if only we let the sociologists and the economists, you know, like run their spreadsheets and tell us how to live. Um, you know, that was another really funny thing was like new Athens, like, you know, the way he described, like what now is just sort of like run of the mill economic theories and the fact that like, you know, economists do run the economy, uh, as like, you know, this kind of like almost mystical on its own. It's like, Oh, they have statistics. And if there are enough (laughs) people, you can, make statements about averages in this kind of yeah. like you know very like mystical kind of way. Yes. Um I thought was like hilarious. But also I get it from like that's brand new. This is like 53, 52 when he's writing it. Like that is like a, a pretty new idea and especially the idea that like we have machines that can really help us do that. Whereas mm-hmm. now, you know, I mean it's like yeah, of course like you know alan greenspan and the machines run our economy like obviously that's what (laughs) happened
2: it made me think a lot so like i said one of my experiences reading this was just thinking a lot about other things that i read when i was younger that are obviously influenced by this and it made me think naturally about foundation which came after this this was this this is a progenitor of, of the foundation books um and it's it's just really interesting to think about how naive the vision of Foundation looks in comparison to this. I mean, Foundation is almost like, okay, what if New Athens just New Athens forever, New Athens, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was it's a fun story. I Look, I, I read found the, the reason I bring up Foundation because I read those when I was very young and I loved them, and I think about them a lot because they are a you know a sort of formative piece of fiction for me, but. It, it's uh it's really interesting to think like even though clark is you know even though there are so many things that we take for granted now that were new tropes to him that he's like kind of using as though they're new because to him they were new even mm-hmm. though he we kind of have advantages as readers i suppose of all this extra experience reading other things um he still manages to do some some pretty sophisticated stuff with these tropes By not having them work out exactly the way that he sets them up to make you think they will, right? Which I really like. I mean, for all that his new Athens seems ridiculous to us now, perhaps, um, it doesn't exactly work out for them, does it? No, it (laughs) doesn't. They just they're just wrong. They're just profoundly wrong at a very basic level about what's going on.
0: Yeah, right. Well, and some of that is out of their. You know, it's not so much that like, oh, if you know. The babies hadn't turned out to like be becoming like hive mind like children of the universe like then maybe
2: it would have worked out right like but that but that was always going to happen like they were there was no other option it's not like in the book like because some other character makes a mistake they're wrong no 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 like from the beginning Mm -hmm. they were never going to have a chance. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right but then at the same time like the overlords do use these same like just essentially more sophisticated versions of the same thing to like get us to that point like they yeah, but, do but know they, what's
2: coming but they don't really they're 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 objects of pity as well you know <laughs> the only people that know what's coming are so alien and vast that we literally cannot comprehend them yeah right <laughs> right
1: yeah, yeah the, the overlords are, are farmers in right? vortexes. texas the, the overlords right. are farmers. They've come to Earth to get a crop, and it, that's the, it's the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and as soon as the crop like pupates, yep, then like they're out of their element. Yeah, right? yep. <laughs> Then they're right.
1: they're they're looking for the truck to see which direction it goes to the to the Overmind.
0: Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. I do love how quickly they piece out. Like as soon as the children start like waking up, they're like, "Oh fuck, time to go."
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like
0: we know how this goes. Jan, yeah. would you mind staying? <laughs>
2: uh, we need you're like a loose end, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. gonna need you to
0: stay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, you would. Okay, we're not gonna tell you what's happening. Um, what do you guys think about the whole benevolent dictator? idea right because that's essentially what the overlords Mm -hmm. are and it kind of reminds me of like the ends of the end of uh the revenge of the sith right when when darth vader the newly appointed darth (laughs) vader is like i have brought peace freedom and security to my new empire right i'm like that's a very sith thing to say but the overlords are doing the same thing (laughs) it's technically for the good of humanity but the just kind of the um the nobility of struggle and and the idea that as humanity you know, humanity's getting ready to go to space, right? They're they're just getting ready to do that mm-hmm. and the overlords show up and they're like, Okay, never mind, I guess we're not gonna explore the universe. And that's where the Jan character kind of I love he can't, that he also, can't let that by go. the way. Yeah, it's great. Right. Like the stars are not for man. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so good.
1: Like the idea that humanity just never gets a chance to get our shit together. Right. Sorry, I, I used a curse word.
0: Uh, we curse freely on this podcast. Yeah, I know. We. I know.
1: Um, my <laughs> sister probably won't listen to this. Hopefully, um, but yeah, there's no other way to say it, right? Because because like they're they're coming through and pulling totally. the rug out before humanity can get it together, and it reminds me. You guys have seen the the day the earth stood still remake, the Keanu oh, Reeves yeah. one. Yeah. There's there's yeah. a good, oh, no, good no, scene in there. Oh, no, no, I haven't seen the
2: remake. Ugh.
1: Oh, you haven't? Okay. Well, there's a good scene in there between Keanu uh, Klaatu and this character uh, played by John Cleese, who is a scientist. And he's pleading with Klaatu saying, look, you can't take this moment away from us. This is our moment where we have to figure it out. We have to change. But we can only find that will to change on the brink. And I kind of agree with that. you know I mean, the possibility is, of course... Inherent in that is we might not make it. Here we have the overlords who assure come come in and assure humanity that they will make it at the expense of a generation being left behind. But I don't know, it Mm. kind of sticks in my craw a little bit about that they're going to come along and solve all our problems and we should be grateful for it. Uh, Totally. I mean, I think this
0: for me is like where the kind of like pro-colonialism stuff like really hits, right? Like there's this, there's this element of like even the idea that they can do that. Mm -hmm. sort of belies this idea that like we could do that for other people. Right. That like coming in from the outside and determining like other people's fate is the like right thing to do. And like, listen, like, you know, I don't want to get too deep into, you know, like questions of like whether like American interventionalism in the world stage is ever the like right thing to do (laughs) at the same time. I think like this brings up those questions, right? Like this brings up those questions of like, at what point is that being overly paternalistic? Yeah. I think there's also another question that it brings up to me of, you know, there's this idea stated throughout the book that, oh, well, once we have utopia, like, human drive ceases. Mm -hmm. And, like, I also, though, I don't know if I agree with that, like, frankly. Like, I don't actually agree with the idea that, like, oh, like, struggle is necessary for art. Mm. And, like, but so the question becomes, like, okay, well, I don't agree. Struggle is necessary for art, but I do also think that like self-determination of a people is like good to some degree. Like, I don't know, it gets really tricky. And the answer that Clark lands on, which is like, yes, like there are people who can know more and like make life better for us in these ways. is like not the one I don't, I don't agree with it, but I also don't necessarily have a positive vision of like this other thing I think is the correct thing. Mm -hmm. Matt, what do you think?
2: I think that I think that the the thing that I disagree with Clark about the most is I think that you have to there's a certain sort of purity to his vision about how these relationships work mm-hmm. which I think never really exists in any relationship. There's a sense in which the overlords are purely better. They're like strictly better. There's like no attribute they're not better at. Like yeah at and that is a very pure way to describe the relation between two things um mm-hmm. it just seems it, it it's it's not it it has no realism to it because there's no real relationship that I've ever heard of or encountered that is pure in that way like if one person is stronger than another and older than another why merely by being older like there, there's a different perspective that they're going to have and the the younger person is not, they're, they're not going to be able to replace the younger person in every possible thing for every possible reason. Mm-hmm. It just, that just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so there's this fundamental way that like the relationship he posits between the colonizer and the colonized, um, the premise of that relationship is unreal. And right. like the purity of that sort of, of their like, power relation doesn't quite make sense because there's a moral component to it too right like the overlords are morally superior to humans they they don't just have the ability to make us do whatever they want they know better right in the sense that like a parent supposedly always knows better than the child in reality that's not like actually true and that's and then and that's like not you know i mean maybe you could say that it might be true in the in the case of like a uh, very experienced parent and a very young infant, but even then, like parents make mistakes. <laughs> Newsflash, like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I
0: think that's you know, I think that's such a great way of putting it. And like the key to this, like the squidginess to to this, to me is that like that supposition that there is a morally superior race like whatever is also the supposition of like euro colonialism right like that is the supposition of the british empire that is the supposition of like america going to iraq to bring democracy right right? right, like that is the supposition that like we have this like moral knowledge that we can like force upon you, and that it is like our right to do so. Right. Um, right, right. And that to me is what I find like really uncomfortable, like now about this novel in a way that, I, you know, the previous times I've read it, I didn't even really like notice it. It was like, yeah, they're smarter, so they're better. Right.
1: right. Whereas like, <laughs> yeah, that is, there's a lot going on in that sentence. <laughs> is the thing that they know that if they don't intervene, that humanity will not reach? This stage that they need to reach or that maybe humanity is headed this way and it's going to happen, but if we don't intervene now, it's going to go badly for the you know the evolving intelligence, right? Without the overlord there to stop right. us from interfering in that, maybe it never happens, and the overmind loses something.
0: Well, the thing that is said at the very end there is that if the overlords don't come, then what might happen is that humanity evolves too quickly and becomes a cancer on the rest of the overmind. Like if we, if we put in the wrong way, then we like fuck it up for the rest of the overmind, which is itself this very like, okay, the overmind has ideas about what's right and wrong. And like, we don't even understand enough about that stuff to have a say in what we think. Like, that's their version of events is that right. if like, oh yeah, when when civilizations get too far without us, they like are bad and cancerous. Maybe sure. our version of events is that, like when civilizations do, they build like socialist utopia, and like they don't like that <laughs> so, right like who, yeah, yeah. who knows? Hmm.
2: That's um, a cancer Adrian,
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> one thing I did I saw so I did i I think this like vibes really well, like. Comparing this book to the left hand of darkness, where in the left hand of darkness, there is also this like much more advanced, like multi-world civilization um, that is like going to like a small kind of backwoods, you know, planet win- winter in the left hand of darkness, the planet winter. And the way they go about trying to bring this planet into the fold is just so different, right? Like it's this very different, like almost like non-colonialist view of colonialism where like we send one person and like, he has to convince you that we exist and that like, it's a good idea to join us. And like being upfront, it's going to change you. Like you can't stay the same just by the very fact of like joining this kind of thing. But one, it's always up to you. Like, no one, like you can always say no. Um, And two, we'll never send more than one person. Like, we'll keep sending them. We want you to join. We actively do. But like this idea that at the end of that novel, you get to this point where it's like, oh, part of the reason that they only send one person is because they understand their ignorance, right? Like the the ecumen of known worlds like understands that like we don't actually understand the people of Winter. So we're going to send one person to be a like diplomat because that person needs to get changed by winter as much as they need to change winter to like join us. Like it has to be this two way street of like, we have to change for them as much as they change for us. And like, that's such this different like moral valence compared to, Oh, well we're going to send everyone and like lead the planet through like getting better.
1: Right.
2: It's funny because I agree with you, but I also, um, I have always felt about that book that it doesn't quite manage to get away scot-free like the acumen isn't completely like correct in their assessment of the of like how morally you know like upright their system is i mean it the 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 fact is that sending one sending any number of single people is an unasked for Intervention, Intrusion. yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> yeah, and you know, <laughs> like, I'm not saying this is like that's the right way to do colonialism. I'm, I'm yeah. just saying like there are different visions of the world available, right. and you know, right.
2: I, I think it's worth talking about that. Oh, it is. No, I'm glad you brought it up. It's it's an awesome idea, Seth. What do you think about comparing those two books?
1: Uh, I hadn't thought of it honestly, um, but but here in what Adrian's talking about, I I do resonate with that, right? Where it is kind of two sides of of how to do colonialism if one of them is better than the other one, right? That's up to you. Um, but you, I can definitely look at the left-handed darkness side and, and go, okay, that's probably a better way to go about it. Um, but, you know, the, the unmentioned third option is just be out there, and when they come out and find you, then you respond, right? That's that's <laughs> yeah, the other way to exactly, go. exactly, right? totally. That's the prime directive, at the risk. Man. Yeah, that's always at the risk of like we talked about, right? Maybe they don't make it. Maybe, maybe their civilization dies. Yep.
2: right, yep. right. Or maybe, like, the, the 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 thing that I love, like, the really good Star Trek episodes about the Prime Directive always have the same plot. And the plot is, but they're hurting themselves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we can stop them. <laughs> yeah. And then, but the Prime Directive, but they're hurting themselves, and then back and forth. And, like, it's a real serious moral quandary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, like the best, of like the worst of those episodes are like, well, they're hurting themselves, so obviously we break it. And the best <laughs> right. of those episodes are the ones that do ask the question of like, like, what does it mean? Like, what yeah. does hurting yeah. themselves mean? What does right. we can stop them mean? Like, what do those right. things actually mean? And what does it mean for yeah. us? Like, just, you know. Like, how do we judge ourselves for either action? I mm-hmm. think is an important thing that kind of gets, you know
1: Yeah. It and gets lost
0: in this book a little bit. Like we don't know how the overlords feel like about their essentially like enslavement and you know, like what we learn from them is they get told where to go and like they do the thing and then they get told to fuck off and go to the next place. And like right. How do they feel about that? How do they feel about the work that they're doing? Do they actually believe it's best for humanity? Like unclear.
1: Yeah. Well, and they're effectively immortal, right? As, as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. And so they've been doing this for a really yeah. long time. And you do definitely get the sense that there's, they have a longing to to do something else, to learn something else, because they've reached the pinnacle of knowledge yeah. from our perspective, right? But there's there's a bit of knowledge that they still want. It actually reminds me of... um. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about—it's looking back on the on the old prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, and it says—oh, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I did write it down. Good. Um, basically, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's from 1 Peter, um, where he says, you know, the prophets knew that their message—or, you know, it was revealed to the prophets that their message was not for them, but it was from a for a future generation, and that it was revealing yeah. things, which, of course, would be Jesus— Um, and it says things into which angels long to look. And that, that's what this reminds me of where, where the, the overlords can see that the work they're doing is benefiting, really not them. It's benefiting the races that they visit and they want to look into that. They want to know more about it. And I find that just Mm. an intriguing concept.
2: Oh yeah. I love that. That's
1: really cool. That is super cool. What did you guys think of, um. In Karellen's speech, he kind of talks about the fact that there's powers of the mind that the overlords don't have, and and there's this whole notion of ESPA. There, ESPA. I almost said ESPN, <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, reminds me of Mean Girls. Um, of of ESP And there's that séance um, where where Jan learns about the location of the um, the overlords' system, right? right? And right. Evidently, from what I understand, Clark kind of repudiated, repudiated this book at some point because he had kind of been taken in by some kind of woo stuff about ESPA. I don't know what's wrong with my. <laughs> at least it's consistent. Um, about just ESPA. where the neural
0: pathway goes.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, and you know, he was very much a skeptic, but he was kind of taken in by this stuff at that point in his life. And then later on, he's like, "Oh no, that's all crap. I wish I hadn't written that."
0: Right. So I uh, I can speak to this in the um in the foreword of the edition that I have. So I have the most recent edition which I think was published in the like early 2000s um and it's the ebook you get on Amazon if you if you get it through Amazon. Okay. Um there's a foreword that he wrote, you know, I I guess he was probably in his 80s at this point like in the early 2000s when he was living in Sri Lanka. He wrote this uh foreword to the novel that talks about this um, as well as some of the changes that got made to the novel over the years. And so this final edition, he reverted those changes and put them into an appendix at the end. Um, and then also talked a little bit about how in the very first edition of the novel, he had an, uh oh, I wish, I wish I had it on me. I don't have it on me right now, but he, he had a disclaimer at the very beginning of the novel that was essentially like, you know, this, this novel does not necessarily right. uh mirror the opinions of its author. Uh-huh. Right? Like this kind of like like usually it's like oh you know it's like the the opinions expressed here do not like publisher blah blah blah. He had that for like himself where it's like I I'm writing this thing not cuz I think this is correct scientifically right. or this is what will happen to humanity, but because I find it interesting. And what he said in that was that Like he still really likes that disclaimer, although now he would put that disclaimer on the on the stuff about ESP and, you know, like this, this various kind of like woo woo, whatever mystical stuff. And I got the sense from that that it was less that he had been like taken in by any one particular thing and more that. You know, in the 50s when he was writing it, there was all this stuff that, like, we just didn't know. Like, we were just yeah, beginning be. to study the brain scientifically. And he, like, from what he understood, there might be something to this. I mean, right. Like mm-hmm. the U S military was doing, you know, studies about ESP, like very seriously at the same time. Like at one point it was a thing that serious people were like, well, we can't rule it out. Like right. maybe there is something to it. And so he wrote the novel from that perspective. Sure. And then later, yes. was like, you know, I think it's very clear now that we were all wrong at that point, mm-hmm. but I got less the sense that it was like, Oh, I got taken in by something and more the sense of like, Oh, like over time our like, you know, viewpoint has evolved. Yeah. mine has but i still find this really interesting and like fun as a book
1: yeah makes sense (laughs) and can i just say i admire how you can say esp and stop right there (laughs) (laughs) i don't watch sports so that probably helps (laughs) i don't
0: get cable sorry i don't (laughs) either it's really the difference between the
2: the difference between the overlords and us is is really comes down to keith Olbermann.
0: Right. <laughs> is he on ESP? ESPN. Well, there I just I did I didn't say the end. so there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My neural <laughs> pathway just ends, apparently. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so but but I do think, you know, it is one of the things I wanted to talk about with this book is sort of like, you know, on, on Spectology, Matt and I tend to read more modern science fiction. Like this is definitely the oldest book that we've read. Um, and I do remember as a kid reading a lot of like golden age science fiction, which this fits into there, you, like it did used to be, I feel like a little bit more mystical, like this sort of like psi power stuff comes up a lot in like, I would say all the way up into the sixties and even into the seventies around the like new age is really where it starts to kind of like stop. And what you start to see is maybe some of the cyberpunk, and like it's like, oh, now we have computers. We don't need like ESP because we can have like implants that do that for us. Yeah. And so maybe it's the same powers, but it has a different techno babble explanation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it, it's funny because, um, when you do see Psy stuff now, it tends to have a very different flavor. Or like more modern Psy stuff that uses some mm-hmm. of that same language. It tends to have a very different flavor. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about things like Babylon 5, which is from right. the late 90s. Or like... Starcraft. Uh, Starcraft. Yeah. It, it's it's this sort of... Or Star Wars for that matter. I mean, mm-hmm. there's new Star Wars movies coming out. And True The Force, Force is sort of a Psy Power type thing. Um, it's very... It has a very different valence where once it was when when it appears in like Foundation and the, with the mule or when it appears in Clark with the the various psi powers and sciences and stuff, you know, the valence is sort of like, yeah, maybe this might be the future along with everything else. It right. fits right in with the rockets, whereas now it's sort of like. I mean, maybe Babylon 5 is a weird exception, actually, or because like that show is a little bit like there are elements of hard, hard sci fi in it. With the uh, the way that you know mm-hmm. spaceships are depicted moving and mm-hmm. the you know their inertia et cetera, um, but uh, so I don't know maybe it's actually even a little bit more complicated than that, or maybe there was a period in the middle between right. the seventies and now when it kind of lay fallow for a bit, and now it's being reused. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I wonder. This actually is a very interesting topic, like psionics in science fiction.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Right. Because these, you know, it used to be such this common trope. I really do think some of it. So, like, for instance, the like I was always reading this book this time, the like children at the end doing their various like dances and, you know, kind of like hive mind, whatever stuff that they're doing out in the woods uh, reminded me a lot of um, the Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. And like there, it's all like nano implants in your brains that creates the hive mind. Mm -hmm. But like, and here it's like whatever, you know, extra sensory perceptive. But like at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's a bunch of like kids dancing underground and like creating the world around them. Right. Like you get like a lot of these same images. They just kind of use these various different like, you know, whatever is our understanding now. And I think maybe some of this like speaks to you know, the way that not just science fiction is influenced by the the real world, so to speak, but also the way that like, you know, science or even just like our conceptions of modern technology can be influenced by science fiction that like from so early on, like as soon as we got any sort of like internet like stuff we're like, Oh, can we hook up our minds to this? Can we download our minds and upload our minds because of all these like psy tropes because of these tropes of like, Oh, well like mine should be able to be connected in some way. Right. Like that's something it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's something we really want somehow Mm -hmm. right like there's this degree to i mean even childhood's end the name of the novel is about growing up and growing up means like losing your identity and becoming like the one and the all and like that's that's interesting that that is like that's this desire that these otherwise very like rational people
2: have i don't Mm -hmm. know there's something like really interesting to that There's a lot to talk about here with psionic stuff that I did not realize was such a deep topic, but I think it really is. We could easily do a lot on that.
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to your future episode (laughs) on that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's probably going to be a big one. It's it's also interesting how like a lot of the other works that we mentioned are obviously heavily influenced by childhood descent. Oh, and totally, that yeah. that brings up the like really big topic of, of like the afterlife of this book and the massive, massive influence it's had on lots of other stuff, which, you know, you already alluded to, Adrian. Um, but I mean, literally everything that I think of in conjunction with talking about the tropes that are in this book seems obviously to have been in some sense influenced by this book. I was just thinking of Akita because of the psychic stuff that happens in Akita. That's clearly influenced by this 100%. or like Babylon five for that matter, or like, Avon <laughs> Kelly. I, mean, I
0: mean, like I think a yeah, lot anything. of
2: Japanese
0: science fiction oh, yeah. stuff is like clearly the, I mean, this book was translated like, as we talked yeah. about in the, um, in the, in the pre-read to um, 10 million days and a hundred billion nights, like, This was a book that people read in Japan in the fifties and like took stuff from.
2: Yeah, and not and not just Japan. I think when when it comes to the sort of global influence of like Golden Age Anglo science fiction, this is one of the most important books. It's in like the top. It's got to be in like the top like three or something most influential and important Golden Age sci-fi books in terms of influence all across the world in every language. Because Mm -hmm. I don't know that this was, I don't know of a major language this wasn't translated into, Mm. right? (laughs) I mean I think it's everywhere
0: it is interesting that I I think I agree with you but also like when I have conversations with people about you know like fans and and Seth I'm really actually curious on your perspective on this I feel like when I have these conversations with fans this isn't necessarily one of the books that gets brought up it's it's foundation it's stranger in a strange land it's Fahrenheit 451 it's it's you know the Martian Chronicles Mm -hmm. it's you know, the moon is a harsh mistress. Yeah. And like, I feel like Clark gets like less attention now. And in particular, like, or it's even 2001, right. a space odyssey, as opposed to to this. And like, whereas, yeah, to me, it feels like this is like the big
1: one, one of the big ones at very least. Yeah. I mean, it can happen that something is so influential, right? That all you know is what came from it. And, and I was interested (laughs) to talk to you guys about this because you read more modern science fiction than I do. Um, because when I think of influences, I'm like, well, you know, I haven't, I'm really not that well read in science fiction, right? I've been making an effort. That's where Hugo's there comes from. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to actually ask you guys, sorry, I'm kind of dodging the question. Um, but yeah, it definitely (laughs) is one to, to actually answer your question, Adrian. Um, yeah, it's not one that I typically will come across somebody and they're like, hey, have you ever read Childhood's End? I'm usually the one who's asking other people. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, so. But I, I did want to talk to you guys about, like, Matt, you said, like, you haven't read this until recently. And yet it's influential. Um, I've found in the past, you know, when you eventually get around to reading something that is super influential, sometimes that thing that was influential just seems derivative of all the other things. And it can really, it can take a chunk out of out of the original. Um, did you find that to be the case? I think the book is
2: good enough that although there were parts where I felt that way, there were other parts that totally transcend the derivative material. Okay, the actually derivative material. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like the moment I mentioned at the end when he sort of Jan sort of glimpses, you know, is it the Overmind? Is it some part of the Overmind? Is it yeah. a hint of the Overmind? Whatever that giant moving thing is. Mm-hmm that's an amazing moment it is. The, the moment when the children the whole sequence of the children kind of transcending right is unbelievable like those those are powerful enough that like it it was sort of inevitable that i would be thinking a lot while i read them about other stuff that i've read that you know derives from that yeah for instance i, I thought a lot about the end of foundation earth uh, which is the final foundation book, no spoilers. and it's like
1: i haven't read that one yet <laughs> okay okay <laughs> fine, fine, fine
2: fine fine all right I, I i i'm on your side all right no no no, no spoilers. I, I thought a lot about um <clears throat> i thought a lot about every time um there's a science fiction story that involves like 2001 for example every time there's a science fiction story that involves some kind of transcendence at the end yeah the the whole trope of transcending you could say that it has antecedents before um childhood's end and it yes. does but i think like That whole trope of transcending, which is so key to so many sci-fi stories, really, like, as we know it, comes from Childhood's End. And in particular, marrying the sense of vastness and alienness and wonder at the, like, scope of the universe with that trope of transcending and the way that those two interact. Mm -hmm. That is something this book still, I think, does really well and really kind of in an unsettling way almost. Mm -hmm. Like, the reason it's good is because it, it doesn't feel easy Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's probably also a reason why people don't go to this book as often as they go to some of the derivative materials like Mm -hmm. because the book is weird like it's a weird book Mm -hmm. it doesn't have like a standard narrative arc it doesn't have like a main character right it doesn't have like a lot of the things that like most novels have you know Mm
1: -hmm. right and the characters aren't even that interesting actually
2: no they're not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like george or whatever the like parent the dad yeah, yeah. like who the Web hell is he dad. like <laughs> yeah. nope his like- wife <laughs> is way more interesting <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i don't know i mean like or carillon or uh the overlord guy like he doesn't really have he's we don't really know anything that, that he thinks about anything right um so i mean i think like the the sort of the weirdness and the difficulty of this book which is what part of what makes it so good also makes it a little bit less accessible yes then. Then um, Foundation, for example, Foundation is a is a sort of an easier read on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I I think in some ways I was
0: lucky to read this like it wasn't the first science fiction novel I read, but I read it relatively early in my like science fiction fandom. And the first science fiction, the first two science fiction novels I ever read were I, Robot and another of Arthur C. Clark's, which was Asimov and another of Arthur C. Clark's books um island in the sky which is like one of his like what would now be called ya sort of like juvenile juvies or whatever Mm -hmm. novels um and like an interesting like that novel had especially for like a kid's novel like relatively strong and fun characters and a pretty traditional narrative but like a lot of his adult science fiction that i've read clark's it it is. It does verge on the weird. Like I feel like it's weirder than the other kind of like big four science fiction authors that I think yeah. of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's right. And you know, for all that we like talked about, kind of like some of this problematic stuff in here around, you know, I mean, like the gender politics are bad. Yeah, we haven't right? even like, talked about right? the gender <laughs> no. politics. Like the gender book. politics are they bad. are bad. <laughs> um, you know, and like, but bad in like a, a pretty much like bog standard, like expected way of anything written in the fifties, right. um, and especially by a guy, uh, and the racial politics are also, like... I feel like with the racial politics, there's this element of, like, they're bad, but you can also see him trying around the edges. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, like... It's not that he's, like, being malicious. It's that he's being, like, ignorant more than anything else. At least that's yeah, he, he's very ignorant, away. Yeah, very right. ignorant. <laughs> exactly. And then... But, like, at the same... Like, for all of that... And I, there is something about it that feels, like, much more like interesting and modern than say anything that asimov ever wrote even in the 80s or whatever like there's something that feels some like you know like he's trying to push his own boundaries and he's trying to like think new things and like this weirdness is not like weirdness for its own sake but really weirdness for like i know i have a limited point of view like what can i do to change that point of view and like I'm not going to be totally successful at it but like I can I can push my own boundaries and hopefully push other people's boundaries to some degree so like yeah I don't know there's this thing of like because it's not even so it's not it's hard to point to any one thing and say like oh he does this better than the like you know stuff that came after and like other stuff he does worse than stuff that came after but there is this kind of attitude throughout the novel of like I'm not doing this to be strange and quirky i'm doing it because i genuinely believe that like we can evolve and like push further that is that is interesting there's some that that attitude i find makes clark i think this is part of why like i wanted to you know we had talked about doing for this sort of like reading classic science fiction month of december reading at least one of kind of the like big four science fiction golden age guys and uh I really wanted to do Clark because I think he gets less attention, A. And two, there's something about it that I think... Like, I like him more now as an adult than I do Asimov's stories. I like him more as an adult now more than I do Heinlein's stories. I think Bradbury and him are, like, very different, but are both kind of, like, engaged in the same thing. But I think he gets a lot less attention than Bradbury does. And so, like, for me, this book is, like, an interesting... Again, I'm not saying that it's like, oh, yeah, it's like super woke or whatever, but that it's like doing something interesting in a way that I don't think necessarily like foundation is even you know, not to say foundation is bad either. But that right. there's something here that you? is like, I don't know, it's it's interesting and it's hard to put my finger on and like talk about. And that's part of what like there's this dreamlike quality to it, just like the kids are dreaming the universe. There's this like cool dreamlike quality to this thing that I really Appreciate. Yeah. I don't know. That oh, was man. a very long winded way of not saying very much of anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was moving us towards no, final I thoughts. Like it. I, think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think so. I think so. Yeah. So what, you know, how do you folks feel about the novel now having talked about it more?
1: I, I mean, I just, I love the fact that it's deep enough, right? It, it brings up so much to talk about. Like we could go for another three hours And, and not hit all the topics, right. Not, not clear them all. And, you know, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, the characters are kind of flat, you know, the the gender politics are, are iffy or of the time. Um, but the ideas are big and, uh, you know, it's definitely worth reading. And, and it's, it's one that, um, you know, I keep asking people, Hey, have you read this one? Um, because like I said earlier, Mm -hmm. I don't usually get people asking me that one. And so I feel like it's one that needs to be proselytized for a little bit, just to keep it in the conversation. And so I really appreciate you guys picking totally. this one up. And Adrian, thanks so much for reaching out to me.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: It's yeah, been man, great
1: having you as always.
2: A total pleasure. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> loved it. We should do it again.
0: I agree, Matt. What about you? Sort of final thoughts on the novel?
2: It's 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 interesting, and I think I maybe didn't realize this until you asked me, Seth. Like to what extent I was watching the superimposed image of other books as I was reading this mm-hmm. and to what extent I was watching this. And I don't think until you asked me that, I don't think I realized until then that, that like, actually, um, this book is really good. Like mm-hmm. I I liked it when I read it. Um, and I perhaps didn't realize the extent to which like some very specific imagery and some very specific language and and ideas stayed with me, mm-hmm. even though, like it's not exactly new to me, right. you know. I've, I've, I mean, like the tropes are not new. The the there's no like sort of one thought from this book that that I've never sort of experienced before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but even despite that, it's it's really stayed with me, and I think, you know, I think it probably still will. And I would also recommend people to read this book if if it's the sort of thing that they like. I think it's still worth reading, which you cannot say as well about a lot of other influential old things. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I
0: wanted to bring up cause I'd forgot to mention it earlier. Like one last thing, which is, uh, for folks who liked this and especially for folks who liked the part of like Jan being like, kind of like amongst the alien world and in these, um, was the sort of like museum of like alien civilizations, um, which I love. Like I love that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this short story by uh Tobias Buckel who we've had on the podcast before and is, you know, like writes these really great short stories, but um he published one recent recently now. I mean, the, this will, this episode will publish in a few months. So I'll link to it in the show notes, but he published it on his Patreon. And like, honestly, it's worth subscribing to his Patreon for a month just to be able to read this one short story. It's so fucking good. Um, And it's called Hmm. the uh, the way I think it's like the curator of the last like museum of earth or something along those lines. And it's it is kind of like there's it's it's some of the same types of stories, but from a much more like anti-colonial perspective. And like, you know, Tobias is someone who like grew up in Mm -hmm. like a, you know, post-colonial society. Um, And so he has a very different point of view than Clark who grew up like in empire. Uh, And I think it's a really Mm -hmm. good, like, you know, if you like this book, both Tobias is a great author. It's a really fun story. And also it's a really nice kind of foil in a similar way to left hand of darkness of just like, seeing a different way of coming at some of these ideas so I don't want to talk about the specifics too much I think it's better to like read them both and like let them be in conversation with each other Um, what about you guys are there any other like you know if you really like this here's like good next reading for you
2: oh man Hmm. that's it's difficult because I could point to so many things there's a there's a there's an overabundance of choices almost I mean like Every big scope <laughs> space opera, but also every book about psychic transcendence. <laughs>
1: right.
2: right.
0: So how's this? Pick one that we haven't talked a bunch about on the podcast before, Matt.
2: Mm. Oh, man. I need a second. <laughs> <laughs> to like sort the info. All right, Seth, like what's think, what some of your Well, yeah,
1: I think you could pretty much uh yeah, you could go for anything else that has first contact mm-hmm. ideas. I mean, that's the other right. side of it, right? There's the first contact thing, that. which is the backdrop for all the transcendent stuff later. So stuff like um A Fire Upon the Deep or Deepness in the Sky, mm-hmm. the Werner Vinge mm-hmm. novels. Um That's a good one. Even, you know, Rendezvous with Rama is is kind of an interesting one. I mean it's another yeah. Clark book, right? Where it's just yeah. about the first contact. Honestly, without the aliens. <laughs> that's a great idea,
2: Seth. I, I really like that that wreck. The other the other big Clark mm-hmm. novels, like that one in two thousand one, mm-hmm. Rendezvous with Rama in two thousand one. Um, also Werner Vinge. I like that rec a lot. It also makes me think about some of the sort of like the tropes are very different, but the emotional valence is very similar for me. Dying Earth Oh, interesting. And totally. Elric. Totally. The the Dying Earth books and the Elric. The Dying Earth stories and the Elric stories. And also, for that matter, the um uh Gene Wolfe um Book of the New Sun. Uh Book of the New Sun. I think the emotional valence of stuff like that is sort of similar to me in that it tries to capture this like it's it's a sense of it's a sense of sort of like slightly disturbing mm. wonder. Mm. Um and you know, it, they're not you know it would none of those are sort of traditional science fiction stories none of the things i mentioned but like whereas the clark and the verner vinge are um but perhaps if that emotional aspect is is the most interesting part you might also like those other things the the other thing you talked about like first contact seth and
0: like the book that that brought up for me is actually contact by carl sagan and like in particular, yeah. because I think that that like we were talking about the like, well, people wouldn't actually lose their religion just because aliens exist, and like I think that book actually deals with right. that really, really well, like surprisingly well, given that like Sagan yeah. was an avowed atheist, but like he has this like kind of like compassion and like empathy for like the religious point of view in that novel that I think is really cool um and and that that's i don't know that's another novel mm-hmm. that uh to me kind of speaks to this like yeah, yeah well what would it look like on earth if we found aliens <laughs> in a really cool way mm-hmm. cool guys well i think we'll wrap awesome. it up seth thank you so much for coming on again this was an absolute pleasure to chat with you about this book
2: it was yeah. thanks man
0: pleasure's all mine guys really appreciate it it was a lot of fun Totally. So let's do it again. We, indeed. Let's do it again. And, um, we'll yes. be back next week with, um, another novel, another guest. I'll keep us in suspense for right now. Uh, we have everything I think planned out, but we're also doing this months in advance. So like I'll, I'll, I'll in case plans change. I'll, I'll keep things in suspense, but it should be good. We'll be going like more and more obscure as we like dig into these old classic sci-fi novels. So the next one is a Matt pick and should nice. be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. I'm
1: looking forward to reading along on these ones. Oh, <laughs> awesome. nice dude. yeah yeah we'll, we'll publish
0: everything at the beginning of december too to let people know like what it's going to be um perfect so with that you know thank you everyone for listening um you can you know oh yeah thanks also for wj for our music and noah bradley at noahbradley.com for our artwork um thank you to seth for being on um actually where can people find you just on the internet
1: uh, easiest way to probably do it is just hugospodcast.com. That's the the hub for both The Hugo Show and Brief Not So Brief. And if you reach out to me on Twitter, it's also at Hugo's Podcast. And that's usually where I play around the most. I do have a Twitter account for Take Me To You Reader and a personal one, but I'm almost always on the Hugo's one. Great.
0: Yeah. And it's it's the Hugo's their Podcast is like, if you like what we're doing, you'll like that. It's a really cool podcast.
1: Yeah, you definitely uh, so. will.
2: Very much in the same spirit, but, and also dealing with books that are like this book Hugo Winners. Right. right. Yep. This book, not a Hugo winner. It retro,
0: retro Hugo retro, winner. No, it lost the retro Hugo. <laughs> no, it to nominated. 1491. Yeah. Not 1491. Sorry, to, to uh, Fahrenheit 451. No way. Yeah, it yeah. lost the Hugo to Fahrenheit
1: 451 like 10 years ago or something like that. This oh, is a retro that's Hugo.
2: too bad. Well, I mean, that book is good too. <laughs> yeah, but if you want the consolation
1: prize, I do have an episode on Fahrenheit 451. So. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Check that and out. And two then. episodes for Take Me to Your Reader because we did the book and the true foe movie. And then we did oh. the HBO films one from a couple of years ago. No, nice. oh, that's kind
2: of fun. Yeah. What what I'm did you do Oh know. this is not a question for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, well, <laughs> which we'll is best? <laughs> which of those three is best? Ooh. Oh well, the book, obviously. But <laughs> fair enough.
0: Solid. Well again, thank you everyone for listening, showing up. You can find us at spectologypod.com, spec- at spectologypod on Twitter. It no, was just spectology.com at spectologypod on Twitter spectology at pod at gmail.com if you want to email us we always appreciate hearing from people and we will be back next week thank you everyone
1: bye bye guys bye